For those tuning in for the first time, the HQ is a podcast serial produced by CHA Learning. CHA Learning is the professional development division of Healthcare Can and is uniquely Canada's only fully online learning provider serving all of healthcare. So please check out more about our learning programs and services after this episode and discover how we collaborate with health leaders and organizations to empower healthcare professionals with the knowledge, skills, and relationships to impact health system improvement. Hi, I'm Dale Strebeck, and welcome to the HQ Podcast, where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading and impacting the health system. Together, we'll explore these topics as we continue to learn together. Maurice Chevalier once famously quipped, old age isn't so bad when you consider the alternative. I wonder if he were to look back on what happened to our seniors over the course of the pandemic, whether he wouldn't adjust or rethink that statement. Certainly, there is more to aging than simply juxtaposing it to a worst-case scenario. Indeed, aging isn't a binary. Not just a matter of being old or dead, there are in fact numerous alternatives that cover the continuum in between, which is where most of us will end up. After all, living is in fact the process of aging. Others might remind us that there is clearly a quality dimension to this, which might be captured in that other proverbial juxtaposition that pits living long against living or aging well. Where and how do you influence this quality dimension? Perhaps there are lessons to be taken from other healthcare leaders who examine our system through the lens of population health and remind us of the importance of moving upstream from symptoms to look at causes and who remind us of the difference between health and healthcare or disease care as some might define the focus of our publicly funded systems. So what is the difference, or even the gap, between current models of long-term care, seniors' care, and aging well? And as it relates to you listeners, our audience, what is the role of healthcare organizations in supporting this different vision? And before I move to our guests, let's not forget the question about why we should all care about aging better. Notwithstanding the obvious that each of us has a similar destiny in front of us, there is that other present-day fact that our Canadian society is getting older and will continue to get older for several more decades. According to a recent article in The Walrus, which I quote, across all OECD countries right now, there are about 30 people 65 and over for every 100 people of working age. In 1950, that ratio was 14 to 100. By next year, that will be around 35. And by 2075, it is predicted to increase to 50 non-working adults for every 100 working in Canada. Or in other terms, that will mean one dependent for every two working age Canadians. If nothing else, this is part of the burning platform that we can no longer sustain our current approaches to aging, and it will impact everyone, young and old. Clearly, we need better approaches and better ideas, which brings me to today's guest, Zanet Reza. Zanet Reza is the Director of Future of Aging Social Impact Team at SE Health, a not-for-profit home and community care social enterprise. She's also the host of SE Health's podcast, The Future Age, and co-lead of the Courage Action for Better Aging Initiative. Managing relationships with clients, partners, and the media has been the cornerstone of Zanet's career. She has worked in the health communications for 25 years, including regular appearances on CBC News Network and being quoted frequently in the Toronto Star and the Canadian Press Network. 
Before SE Health, Zanet ran a consulting company, worked at a social issues marketing agency, and managed a PR portfolio for an association. She has a Master of Health Sciences in Community Health, and her mission is to promote health and well-being to help people thrive at any age. So hi, Zanet, and welcome to the HQ. Hi, Dale. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, thank you for taking time out of a very busy time in our lives to, to have this conversation and an exciting moment for me to have another podcaster to be able to speak to about this. So um, thank you for sharing your work and your experience about, um, about aging uh, as it relates to all of us. My pleasure. Um, so maybe we can start with some of what we just described in your introduction here um, and tell me about the work that you do at the Future for Aging team. Yeah. So as you mentioned, SE Health is a, a home and community care social enterprise. So we day in and day out, we provide over 25,000 um, visits to patients and their family. And with the Future of Aging team, we kind of take a step back from the day-to-day -day operations of SE and look at the, the larger ecosystem out there. So working with a lot of partners to look at what are the challenges, what are the opportunities to reimagine aging in Canada. And we really look at it from a local societal and global level. So, you know, some of our work involves at a society level, combating ageism. We know that ageism is the root cause the root cause of many, many issues out there, not just mm -hmm. health, but also beyond employment, income, all the rest of it. So combating ageism is one of our big pillars of work. We're also really passionate about coming up with ways to have age-friendly, affordable housing. We know there's a housing crisis, but mm -hmm. especially as people get older, that crisis uh, is even more acute. And then from a, a daily living perspective, looking at caregivers, what are the best supports for caregivers and the importance of social connections. And then on the global stage, we're actually a member of the open-ended working group on aging. And that's one of the working groups of the United Nations. So lots going on with the future of aging team, but we're always looking forward to look at, you know, what's out there, how can we disrupt and shake up the system to create a better world for all ages? Thank you. So yeah, so you clearly have a lot invested in this. You're engaged in, you know, at all levels of our society and internationally. Um, so, you know, very excited in terms of how you're going to bring that conversation here today. So obviously, one of the big initiatives that uh, SE has been involved in is that of the Courage uh, Action for Better Aging initiative. So maybe uh, describe for our listeners, you know, what is that? Um, and yeah, why, why that initiative? Yeah, for sure. So um, again, this was sort of our a big, broad societal lens on aging and reimagining aging in Canada. So maybe we'll sort of step back three years and Courage really came about as a series of conversations between our former CEO, Shirley Sharkey, and the CEO of Covenant Health in Alberta, Patrick Gemelli. And really the conversation was around, we all know the, that older adults have been disproportionately affected by COVID. Um, and we're looking at, okay, if we look at where funding goes towards older adults, it really is more institutional focus. 
But interestingly enough, 93% of older adults in Canada live at home and in the community. And we all want to live holistically, et cetera, et cetera. So why haven't we moved the dial in terms of meeting the wishes of older adults. And the conversation then went to, well, actually, maybe it's because we're all working in silos and our voices are fragmented. And this really was the impetus for Courage Action for Better Aging. So it's a, we're starting a social movement. It's right now being spearheaded by SE Health and Covenant Health. And what we're trying to do is have that sort of one voice, a cohesive, coordinated coalition. And it's not just organizations, it's everyday people as well. So this is really where Courage Action for Better Aging started. But in terms of getting it off the ground, we needed to take a look at what are those key pillars to help people live at home. So a discussion paper was produced looking at the past 10 years worth of research, gray literature, best models, uh, best practices, to say, what are those key pillars? So uh, five key themes were, five key themes emerged, one being the need for age-friendly communities. So that's not going to be a shock to people in this in this system. Mm -hmm. uh, the other one was innovative ways of living. So not just, you know, a, someone in their independent home, but as you're care needs increase, what are those other innovative models of living? Uh, the third theme was technology to enable people to live at home. I have to say, I don't really like the aging in place language. It really is living at home. That's ultimately what we're saying. Mm -hmm. The fourth was care coming to you at home. And then the fifth one, which is really important, is keeping well and socially connected. So once those themes emerged from the research, we then took the discussion paper and reached out to organizations and also individuals. And that's really when I was hired on by SE to have all these conversations. And in terms of our broad engagement, us along with Covenant Health, we reached over 800 people, over 70 organizations various sectors to say, okay, here are the themes that we're seeing. Does this resonate? And are you interested, interested in being part of this Courage Coalition? And what was amazing was every single conversation, people said, yes, we're totally on board. What they wanted to see was action, because I feel like we spend a lot of time talking about the issues, here are the challenges, but what are we actually do to move the dial here. So the action piece was really, um, really resonated with people. And they were all in in terms of rolling up their sleeves and getting to work together. So that collective action piece. So after having all these conversations, connecting with older adults through a survey and conversation circles, we held a summit uh, December of 2022, where we brought together 181 change makers from various sectors to say, we need to roll up our sleeves and tackle a few recommendations to make this living at home a reality. And I should say, you know, as we're starting this social movement, every social movement needs a manifesto. And through the summit and many, many conversations with people afterwards, the manifesto is, we believe in growing older on our own terms. Hmm. It's powerful. Um, and what does that mean? I mean, what does that mean to you? Maybe Zana, just well, what does that mean to me? Um, 
You know, I think it's looking at life holistically. Oftentimes people think aging is about health and certainly that's one aspect of it, but there's more to it than that. It's, you know, when we look at social determinants of health and living, it really is, you know, having meaning in your life, being socially connected, education and really lifelong learning like education doesn't stop the minute you finish university or whatever um it, it really is looking at living through a holistic lens and obviously aging on your own terms means different things to different people and that is okay because it really needs to be tailored to each person yeah well, it's certainly when i hear that i mean i hear empowerment right and um an agency right as opposed to you know being taken care of um, and being able to make choices in terms of how you live that part of your life, which I, I think ultimately, I think all of us as we grow up, right, from being, you know, my teenage son, I mean, that's what he's striving for and is agency and choice. And why would we give that up? Because we get older. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I love it. So, um, so you mentioned impact networks um, being key to creating that change. And uh, obviously you, you pulled from a, a large number of, of organizations, which was, a, you know, a, that's a huge undertaking. So what are those networks um, and how do they apply to courage? Well, I think, you know, we need to acknowledge that we're all part of networks, whether it's informal networks, you know, friends, family, neighbors, et cetera, or more formal networks, so professionally. And what's really interesting about this concept of impact networks is bringing all those various networks together. And when you look at complex issues such as aging, there's no single person or organization or even sector that can address this complex issue of aging. So what an impact network is, is rather than putting yourself at the center of an issue where, you know, if I, if you can draw a diagram, you're in the middle or your organization's in the middle, and then you kind of do a quote unquote stakeholder mapping. So all mm -hmm. these people and how they're related to you. So an impact network flips that on its head to say, what's your shared purpose? So in our case, it is being able to grow older on your own terms. So that shared purpose is in the middle. And then you connect that shared purpose with all the different players who have a stake in that and even people who are affected. So literally everyone in Canada, we're all living, we're all aging, we all have a part to play. So what's interesting with an impact network, it's, it's a shift in mindset. And so it goes from looking at life in hierarchies and, you know, which organization is better than the other, who's got more power. It's not about that. It's about adopting a network mindset. So you come in an open mind. And um, I think that's really one of the biggest things is being open to new ideas, meet new people, because by bringing all these new people and new ideas together, you can create something called emergence. So emergence really is magical. Like you can't predict what's going to happen. Like you can kind of map out, here's where we see, you know, courage going, but we've had to pivot as we've talked to new people, different people, etc. So think of an impact network as a living ecosystem. So change happens all the time and you kind of have to go with the energy of the people. So I'll give you an example. One of the things we want to do with Courage is have a summit. 
and we had a certain timeline for a summit. But it became very clear as we spoke to various people, and two-thirds of whom were older adults, by the way, mm-hmm. to say, we can't boil the ocean. So yes, aging on your own terms could be so many different things, but how do we narrow that down. And we were able to do that by having um, an expert advisory group. So we had fantastic partners like um, HWELL, the Canadian Red Cross, Women's Age Lab, uh, the Center for Aging and Brain Health Innovation amongst them. And basically, uh, so we had them, but we also had an older adult representative. And basically they said, okay, if we had to pick four Uh, if we had to pick a handful of recommendations, what would we move forward with? And so they identified four. The fact that, and this is kind of the crucial one, which is Canada doesn't have an aging plan. We kind of need one because so many other countries have one. And we are hurtling towards being a super aged society where one in five of us will be over the age of 65. So Canada needs an aging plan. We need to embrace holistic living. So what we're calling 360 living models. We need to connect communities because there's amazing work being done in communities across the country, but very limited connections between them. And then finally, how do we unite change makers, like people who are really passionate about all this? So, you know, Going back to impact networks, it's you have a vision, but then as you have these conversations and touch different people, you have to go with the flow in a way. And I think for some people, that's a little scary because you can't predict outcomes. You have to be open. Um, And so oftentimes people talk to myself or my co-lead at Covenant, Jennifer Olson, and they're like, well, how do we do this? And I'm like, we don't have the answers. What we're doing is bringing people together and let's co-create this. So an impact network really gives people a sense of shared ownership. So it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, our two organizations leading everything, although in reality for now we are, but it's more about, you know, everyone has a say and a role to play. Yeah. And so, I mean, as you're describing some of those things, my mind goes to you know, some of the same principles or tenets of like people centered care, um, which is, you know, certainly putting right this the stakeholder at the center of the equation, not the not the solver, and then working through as, as you're describing that that co design approach. Um, and, and I do, I, I, you know, I commend you on that as well, because I, I mean, I think so many of us in positions of power influence, um, take that privilege to solve problems for other people. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's one thing for health sector to say, we're going to go out and do this, but understand that you have to work with municipalities, or you have to work with other agencies and, and stakeholders and all of this. And that only, you know, we only may have one part of that, you know, equation, um, and to do that without them, I think would, would be blind and, and often why I guess we exercise failure. So, uh, so that's great. So. With all of this, you know, great inspiration and, uh, you know, a great model in place by the sounds of it, you know, what are the challenges you're facing in this then as you keep going forward? Well, you know, um, before I jump into the challenges, I I just want to quickly talk about successes, (laughs) which is number one, (laughs) I'll I'll get to the challenge, uh, which actually, you know, maybe you can help me out with. But in terms of the successes, it is so amazing to see the energy when we 
get into rooms or bring people together, the excitement that we're actually going to take action and, and work together. So I have to say that has been one of the more rewarding things is how giving people have been towards coming together to build this impact network. Now, in terms of the challenge, I have to say that limited resources, I would say, is the number one challenge because, you know, there's just two organizations, there's two co-leads on this particular project, and there's just not enough hours in the day to, to do this, plus everything else that we have to do. So uh, one of the things this year ahead that we're really going to be intentional about doing is bringing on more people to help with some of the work that needs to be done. I mean, already we have amazing partners. So for example, Agewell has really taken a leadership role in um, in the work related to Canada's aging plans. So they're hosting a working group to help craft a policy statement to urge the federal government that, hey, we need an aging plan, just like other countries or many other countries, that reflects the social determinants of health, but also addresses the needs of diverse communities, populations within Canada. So AgeWell has been amazing. CABI, so the Centre for Aging and Brain Health Innovation, they are very passionate about getting, like activating older adults, uniting change makers, igniting a grassroots movement, because it can't just be the same old top-down um, approach where it's organizations trying to solve the world. There also has to be a bottom-up approach. And that's definitely one of the key themes that we heard at the summit last year, which is nothing about us without us. And so this whole idea of co-creation and getting the grassroots and communities ignited is a, a really big key when it comes to the success of courage and its impact network. So I would say, going back to your question, the challenge really is resources. And it doesn't have to be, you know, cold hard cash or money. It's not necessarily that, but it's also having other people step up to say, okay, um, you know, one of the things we want to do is an inventory of 360 living models. That's going to take many, many hours to do that. And so who can step up and say, hey, I've got a student or a you know PhD student who could take this on. So we need that kind of support to really make this a success. So, well, I'm hoping that maybe one of the outcomes of this episode then is that it may stir some people in terms of how to get involved. And we can certainly make sure that people know how to how to contribute to that. But yeah, I think so many of these kinds of social movements or, you know, volunteerism led types of things. I mean, it comes down to those, you know, proverbial, you know, time, treasure, talent sort of questions and what can you bring? Um, but there's room for everyone to do in some of those spaces. So um, but yeah, it, it, certainly my mind is going to, uh, yeah, you can unite a lot of people with a strong will and, and desire to make that change. And then one's going to say, but I don't have the time to do this, right? Or um, I need money to be able to make those investments. But um, maybe you could describe, I guess, maybe what some of the different models that maybe that are coming out of the Courage Project at this stage. I mean, things that you're, I mean... Are there ideas, innovations that are sort of gaining a bit of traction in this that you might want to bring forward for us? 
Yeah, so I, I mentioned this concept of 360 living models, and it's a term that literally we made up. <laughs> and basically, it came from this notion of, you know, we want to live holistically. What does that mean? So a 360 living model is where you've got health and housing, social services, community supports, all interwoven seamlessly. So if you're living in a community, you have a community hub, if you call it, um, where you can go and access different resources. So you don't have to um, necessarily sort of find your way or navigate yourself to access various um, resources and services. So this is the concept of 360 living models. Now, there are different elements of that across the country or different programs and initiatives. And one in particular that's rather interesting is in Halton region in Ontario. It's called the Community Wellness Hub. And what's interesting about it is because it's run through the municipality, it's much easier to bring those diverse services together. So the health, housing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and so they right now service a few specific buildings in Halton region where there's a high proportion of older adults and, you know, they can bring health services to the building um, and sort of social wellness programs. So you're living in a place where, you know, it's it's secure to live, you get the services and supports that you need. And I think that's the one big thing that's lacking throughout the country is that holistic approach to living. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, Community Wellness Hub is one example. The other one are NORCs, uh, so naturally occurring retirement communities. And again, there's been a lot of buzz around NORCs, uh, one in particular out of Kingston and run by Queens, two professors at Queens University called Oasis. And so again, it's this idea of how do we help people with daily living and focus really more on the health promotion side of things versus, you know, now that they've slipped through the cracks, et cetera, they're going to need all these acute healthcare services. So in our working groups at the summit last year, there was a ton of interest around these 360 living models. Mm -hmm. But one of the challenges is we're calling them different names. So if we're starting to advocate for more funding for 360 living models, there's no uniform name or definition as to what it is. So in the year ahead, what we're doing is bringing people together from the Courage Network and others, we're always looking to grow the network to say, how do we come up with a blueprint for a 360 living model? Like what are those key essential elements that you need to be a successful model? Recognizing, which is something we also have heard from our engagement and conversations is every community is different. So it's not going to be a one-size-fit-all solution. We, whatever this blueprint is needs to be able to be customized and tailored to each community. So creating a blueprint is uh, definitely one of our priorities in the year ahead. So, I mean, I th I th it strikes me as... as, as you know, very, I guess, brilliant in, in so many respects, but, but I'm making an assumption here. So let, can I just maybe ask you a couple of questions so I don't have to make those assumptions and we'll see if we arrive in the same place, but, um, you know, so the 360 models and you've given a few different examples of them, what is the problem that they're solving? Like, what is, what are they responding to that's, that's missing or that, that, 
um, that they're, 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 they're creating. Yeah. So I think the sort of the unifying theme for 360 living models is the fact that um, whether it's health or housing, it's that seamless process. So people don't need to flounder around saying, okay, I've got specific housing needs. I have to go to this one place, uh, healthcare or health, other supports. I've got to find my way elsewhere. So it really is looking at a person holistically to say, okay, like a lot of these supports are intertwined, right? One thing will affect the other. So that's kind of the, the crux of it is we really should be able to access resources in one spot, or it's kind of like a one-stop shop. Like that's a very simplistic view of it, but that's ultimately what it is. And the good news is there are so many of these types of initiatives across the country. So the vision, in addition to creating a blueprint for, hey, if you're, if you have say, you know, housing services, how can you then connect to other initiatives in your community to offer a fully holistic um, living model for your community. So um, creating an inventory of these models is going to be key because oftentimes challenges that someone out West might face could be similar to someone out East. And then how, how can we learn from one another? And so the grand vision here is in addition to doing an inventory and adding to it is how do you digitize it? And the vision here is creating an interactive map. So we've got a map of Canada. These uh, 360 living models are pinpointed across the map. You should be able to click through and get a snapshot of some of the key elements of this model. But what's really interesting here is the opportunity to overlay storytelling. Because if you look at every successful social movement, storytelling is at the crux of it. So what exactly is making this particular model a success? And hear it from the voices of people who are living that reality. So um, in this interactive map that we're planning, it's you can learn about it through text, audio, video. And you know, ultimately, with Courage and the social movement, we want to advocate for change. We mm -hmm. want to advocate for more funding towards these living models and other supports. Um, and so part of advocacy is sort of that traditional piece where you've got organizations meeting with ministers and whatnot, and that's important. But ultimately, advocacy through storytelling also dovetails into that grassroots movement. So that bottom-up approach. Yeah. So, I mean, so there's a lot of like knowledge sharing transfer exchange that's happening just in terms of identifying <clears throat> innovations and ideas in terms of that can be scaled, spread, um, and you're creating that community for that, um, which is very powerful and, and clearly is filling a really important void. I guess part of what I'm struck by what you're describing um, is that part of the reason there's probably lots of these examples across the country is because the there's a big there's a common system problem across the country that they're all responding to um and which is the disintegration between our social community health other services housing services right all of those things are just it's a dog's breakfast of different supports that were not designed to work together don't work together and you know um 
people who don't have knowledge of those things have a really hard time probably accessing them and using them to support. I would think that, you know, the same applies to, you know, new Canadians coming to our country as they try to figure out how they get support. Or, you know, we talk about, you know, patient navigators trying to go through our healthcare system because they can't figure out how the different parts of our system work together. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, we, we have some real structural problems, I suspect. And, um, so I guess, are, is that on the radar, I guess, for courage or, you know, is that part of where you may be going in the future? Like in terms of addressing those structural yeah. issues? Yeah. I mean, good uh, luck to you, but. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Thanks. <laughs> we need all the luck we can get. Well, you know, I think that's ultimately part of the advocacy piece, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, when you think about impact networks, things don't happen in a linear fashion. So all these things are happening in parallel, right? Coming up with an advocacy plan, doing this inventory, uh, igniting a social movement, they're all happening in parallel, different um, timelines. But yeah, to your point, you know, when you look at the amount of money that we spend on healthcare in this country, compared to say other OECD countries, it is actually a phenomenal amount. And uh, a lot of that, when we think about aging, older, whatever, I believe 64% of that funding goes towards building long-term care facilities. Like, And because our population is aging, we literally will not have enough beds for everybody. And also this whole issue with beds, people don't want to be in these beds. So mm -hmm. what is the point? And oftentimes people talk about Denmark, and they have not built a long-term care bed in 20 years. And they've shifted so much of their funding towards helping people live at home. And just sort of simple-ish uh, daily living activities. So who's going to do groceries? Who's going to, you know, rake the lawn or shovel snow? Like those are just very like day-to-day -day things that people need help with. And so if we can do that, maybe we'll get the success of Denmark because their costs have been reduced dramatically. I don't know the exact numbers, but you can look it up. It's it's a winning model. And of course, then you're going to have the naysayers to say, well, they're a much smaller country. We're a way bigger country, all this sort of stuff. But, you know, maybe there's some lessons to be learned there. So what parts of their strategy can we adapt to our needs so i i really feel like um the time is ripe we're we're at a tipping point where we need to do something covid has really provided that tipping point's unfortunate but sometimes that needs to happen and we can actually learn from other countries so japan if you're thinking of a super age society <clears throat> They're miles ahead of us. And they have a plan in place to adjust um, and adapt to a, a, a growing aging population. And one of the big things when you look at Japan or Singapore is how do you keep people socially connected, give people meaning and purpose, and then provide services that will help them function day to day. And again, sounds very simple, but as you and I know, it's really not. But there needs to be some fundamental shifts in our culture, in our systems to say aging is not just about health. We need to think about the workforce and helping people stay connected and productive and all the rest of it. So this really does need, uh, you know, 
a requirement of flipping the system. And that's ultimately where where we're headed. Is it ambitious? Yes, it is. But really now, now is the time. Yeah, well, I argue we don't have any other choice than to be ambitious. And so, um, you know, we, we have some monumental changes coming in our society. And we, we certainly talk a lot about climate change being one, but uh, our aging population is certainly another, um, you know, environmental shift that is coming or already upon us. So, um, so I mean, you, you did talk, you touched on, you know, um, you know how much of our resources are spent in building long-term care beds facilities uh, comparative to you know Denmark but maybe you know expand that a little bit further I mean does courage um, you know have a vision for what that should be instead or you know I mean I think the the grand vision is to help people thrive at home or wherever they choose to call home. Mm -hmm. Do we have all the answers? No. And that's really where that impact network comes in is if we pool our efforts collectively, we can flip the system. And I think if we're looking federally, look at where the quote unquote seniors portfolio lives. Is it its own entity? No. Right now it's slotted under labor. Like how much attention does it get (laughs) is a question. But Mm -hmm. also because living and aging is such such a multifaceted thing we need to look across ministries you can't just have like transportation in a slot you can't just have economic development like aging like you're literally hitting every single ministry so you know does the minister of labor and seniors now does this person have the power to pull in various ministry and ministries and work towards an overall aging plan. Like that's the vision. Like that's what needs to happen for us to be a successful country. And you know, you talk about climate change. So um on the Future Age podcast, our um our episode number eight was on climate change and aging. And what was really interesting is the guest that we had, it was Dr. Trevor Hancock, who, when I looked at his biography, he like, it was just so much to choose from. But anyway, he's, he's one of the co-founders of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. And he said to me, he's like, you know, you're talking about climate change and aging, but that's just a very narrow lens. And what we need to be working towards is a well-being society and a well-being economy, which I'd never heard of before. Mm-hmm. But basically, a couple of years ago, the World Health Organization came out with this sort of big recommendation of working towards a well-being society, well-being economy, where you're putting people and the planet at the center, and then you drive the economy that way versus putting the economy at the center at the expense of people and the planet, which mm-hmm. I, I think is rather interesting. So when we're thinking about, say, climate change, it really is a much bigger entity that we're going to have to deal with. So all to say, I mean, no one has the answers, but I think if we pull pull together our resources towards a common shared vision, that really is the first step. So less about thinking how we're positioning our organizations in that sort of competitive mode and moving more towards a collaborative mode. Of course, mm-hmm. easier said than done, but um, it's it's really something that we need to do. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, part of what you're saying as well, I mean, it gets me thinking that it, it's also about like shifting, I guess, our values at some level or, or how what we value or how we shape some of those values. Like even what you're describing around, um, you know, looking at our economy from a different perspective, you know, that same conversation like with our aging population and the number of so-called dependents that it's going to create for our, our economy and, and those that are still working doesn't reflect the fact that because a person is aging or aged or senior um, or retired or whatever their status might be is not contributing, <laughs> right? That they become a, you know, a sole dependent in our society, right? We forget that our grandparents, right? Our babysitters, right? Taking care of our children so that we can go to work and don't have to um, make other investments that has an economic value for us or sharing their knowledge, right? In some of our, you know, other kinds of traditional homes and things like that. So much like, I, I guess, in that environmental perspective, just throwing garbage into the ocean, like what's the cost? Who cares? It's out of sight. It's out of mind without realizing the true real cost that that is. Um, so, yeah, I guess it is that more, again, boring the language you've been using, that 360 or holistic sort of approach to things. Well, I just want to pick up on a point that you talked about, which is um, <clears throat> this notion of aging and the narrative of aging. I think we definitely have to change that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like looking at older people and think we don't want to think of them as quote unquote a burden. There's still they've contributed to society and they can still continue to contribute to society in different ways. And um, you know, it was interesting. We did an episode on the podcast on the future of work. And I spoke with Lisa Taylor of the Challenge Factory. And she said, you know, people have this mindset of we need to quote unquote retire at 65. But why 65? Like, where did this actually come from? And it was during the Depression era in the 1930s where the average life expectancy was 62. So 65 was, okay, if you just happen to make it a few years after when you're supposed to, you know, die, you've got a bit of a social safety net. And so I think this idea of 65 is really entrenched in society, even though we don't have mandatory retirement, but people are thinking, okay, I'm going to start to wind down. But then as you go into your quote unquote third act, where's the purpose in your life? Like, what's the purpose? What's the meaning? What are you going to do? Because you likely have another 20, 25 years, 30 years ahead of you. So how do we find meaningful ways to have, continue to have older adults contribute, feel like they're part of society and not just shuffled away to the side. So bringing it back to changing the narrative on aging and ultimately what we what we want to do is combat ageism or age discrimination. And I would say that it's probably the most tolerated discrimination in society. People are like, oh, you're over the hill or I'm having a senior moment or you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, um, if you look at uh, some of the amazing people around the world, they have um, accomplished all the things they have beyond the age of 40. And the most successful entrepreneurs are not the 20-year-olds in their garages or basements. They're 40 plus because they have that life experience, right? And and you look at amazing people like David Attenborough, he's 92, 93. He hasn't quote unquote retired. And not yeah. that you need to be like a David, but you get what I'm saying, which is 
you can continue to do the things that you love and contribute in different ways. So going back to the future of work, I think sometimes organizations need to be a little flexible. So maybe as a person gets older, they don't want to work full-time hours. Maybe they want to work part-time hours. Like what are those opportunities to keep people engaged? And the reality is most well, many people can't afford to retire, right? So there's also that financial need to continue mm-hmm. to to earn because let's face it, people are living in well into their 80s and 90s nowadays. Yeah, well, there's so, there's so many ideas and questions I have for you about as we go down these different rabbit holes. But yes, I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's, you know, you know, we, we, yeah, we can talk about body dysmorphism, right? But at, at some level, right, there's an age dysmorphism that's happening even amongst ourselves as we get older and feel that we can't contribute or do things. But, you know, I don't know if you've watched like the Netflix or the Blue Zones, right? But, you know, that's inspiring, but at the same time, kind of scary, because if I'm going to live another, you know, 50, 60 years, like, I need to figure out what I'm going to do with that time. Um, and I think that is, um, you know, where you say you want to be contributing, and it, perhaps it's not just a definition of work is the only way that we take meaning from our lives. Um, but there's other ways that we can contribute and be, I guess, um, included in that. But it's, I mean, there are exciting conversations to be had for sure. And then, you know, just to add to that in terms of, um, like, we need a cultural shift where we look at older people as valuable, right? So I think that fundamental fundamentally needs to happen. When you look at certain cultures, older people are like the elders. They're the, you know, vessels of wisdom. So that needs to happen like in a big way. And this whole changing the narrative around aging, aging is living. That's it, you know, you're literally aging from the time you're born. And people need to think that aging is just a normal part of living. It's not a disease. It's not something that you need, you know, necessarily be worried about. Sure, does your body physically change? Yes, but there's just more to it than that. So um, yeah, just had some really fascinating conversations on challenging norms around aging and around ageism. Sometimes you can be ageist against yourself to say, oh, I can't do X, Y, Z because I'm this age, right? So it's not just people discriminating against you. It's also sometimes self-discrimination if you want to look at it that way yeah for sure there's just so many different paradigms and ways that we look at things we you know that a person at a certain age and physically not able to do certain things anymore is now um, frail or incapable um, but we didn't wouldn't judge a six-year-old or a 10-year-old as frail or incapable because they can't do the job of a 20-year-old man right so um it's yeah the, there is a, a lot in terms of um the biases and and judgments that we're bringing into the space but maybe sort of segueing from that a little bit and bringing it back to some of the work that you know courage is talking about so you one of the things i guess i've been struck by through the course of the conversation is is that at the beginning and i and i love that you know the reframing of living or aging at home as opposed to aging in place because we're not a vase that we put on our shelf. Um, but, but you emphasized home in that, in that. Um, and then some of the other conversations before we got off on some tangents, we were talking about housing. So I'm just 
the the does that come up i guess in the in the work of courage in terms of the distinction between home and how house and which what is there a what where's the problem or where's the issue or where's the need uh yeah i mean those are very big questions i guess what we're saying is home is what you call home and no do we define it for people as courage we don't uh, from a housing perspective, and this is kind of outside of courage because there's only so much you can tackle initially under the umbrella of courage, but housing, generally speaking, especially for older people, um, there's something called the, I believe it's called the missing middle, and it affects about 60% of older adults where, you know, if you're very low income, you can have supports as you get older. And if you've got a lot of income, then, you know, you can live, the housing is not an issue, but it's, it's the in-between phase of, you may have more complex needs, where you're currently living doesn't really work for you. I mean, it's a whole complex issue and age-friendly affordable housing is definitely one of the uh, pillars that SE Health is trying to solve. And in fact, um, we created a playbook called Building with Mission, and it really is for mission-driven organizations, so healthcare organizations, on the role that you can play in terms of addressing age-friendly, affordable housing. So that could be a whole other podcast episode. Mm -hmm. But getting back to your question around courage and housing, at this point, you know, like we're not tackling the housing issue per se, not that it couldn't in the future, but uh, the crux of courage at this point is to really promote these 360 living models because there's snippets of it across the country. There's some successful models. So let's start there in terms of some concrete actions, and then we'll see where this evolves. Great. Thank you. So you segued into, I think, the, sort of my next question then around, you know, how can our, like, if I was sending us a message to our healthcare can members, right, which are provincial, regional health authorities and hospitals across the country, um, you know, how can they, you know, as institutional organizations um, in the space, how can they support courage and be part of this? Yeah, well, I would say, you know, going back to impact networks, everyone has a role to play, no matter who you are. I think the crux of it is being open to change and being open to being part of that solution and working with others. So number one, uh, join the coalition. Go on to uh, actionforbetteraging.ca. Check out the, the roadmap for action that we have there. We're looking for people to read it, obviously, endorse it, and really reaching out and exploring ways to get involved. Because like I said, this is not a prescriptive coalition where, you know, we're doing ABC. It really is about co-creating the future. So who knows what the possibilities are? So reaching out, I would encourage you to attend Courage events, you know, reach out, get on the mailing list. We're having these jam sessions, is what we're calling it, to bring people together to have conversations, ideate, et cetera. And we'll be having a series of jam sessions specifically around 360 living models. So if you're curious about that and a role that you can play, um, definitely keep an eye out for these um, jam sessions that are coming out. 
maybe there's something, um, maybe there's a way of connecting to an existing 360 living model and helping to implement something concrete. What that is, I don't know, because it depends on, you know, who you are, where you're located, et cetera. But part of our role at SE Health and Covenant Health is to be those conveners, to be the connectors. And uh, we've definitely done that for many groups across the country. And so if you reach out, we're happy to, you know, meet with you and see how we can all work together. And then um, if you are so lucky as to have extra resources laying about, uh, hmm. maybe we can have a conversation about how do we work together towards collective action. So I would say those are some of the ways to be involved initially, but who knows where this could evolve to. Yeah, I, I can imagine, you know, certainly many things that may come out as you continue down this path. Obviously, you know, um, these healthcare organizations, providers are certainly going to be part of that, that 360 circle in some form or another. Um, and because of their you know, they're anchor institutions in our communities, right? They have a huge opportunity to influence and participate, I would think. So, um, so thank you. I will make sure that we include that information in our show notes for, for people who want to get involved. Um, so looking ahead, I mean, you're three plus years into um, your journey, you're just sort of at walking age right now, I guess, if we stay with the metaphor, um, you know, what is the future for courage? Well, I can tell you the immediate future, because as I said, you can't predict, you know, the end yeah. goal here. But in terms of the immediate future, we're really focusing on uh, four key areas. So number one, as I mentioned, working together with groups across the country to create a blueprint for 360 living models. Number two is to create that inventory of 360 living models and what I'm hoping is going to be a fantastic interactive map. Number three, which is really uh, rather interesting. So we looked at social movements across uh, time, across the world to say, what are those key essentials that make a social movement successful? And in looking at that, one unifying feature or one universal feature um, is an action kit. So we talk about igniting the grassroots, but what do they do? Like, how can they take action? So coming out over the next few months is what we're calling a Be Courageous action kit with concrete actions for individuals, but also for organizations, some of which I've already shared. So an action kit is rolling out, we're co-designing it with older adults, others, and then we're going to be deploying that. So that's the third sort of key activity for Courage. And then based on conversations, et cetera, coming together with a, a larger advocacy plan. So obviously at an organizational level, but also at a grassroots level. So those are, I would say, are the four kind of near-term initiatives uh, for uh, for Courage. Wow, very exciting. I look forward to seeing how those continue to, to play out. Um... So, you know, I, I know that we've, you know, we've segued a little bit throughout this conversation um, today, but, and you, and you have generously shared with some of your learnings from some of the podcasts that you've done as well. But, um, you know, anything else that sticks out for you, Zana, to, in terms of, you know, your, your own journey, I guess, over, you know, being involved in this project and, and hosting the, your podcast for, a season, um, you know, what, what is, you know, what has been your aha or ahas? 
uh, well, specific to the podcast, a, a few different things. So our very first episode was around 3D printed houses. And I happened to come across this, you know, I was scrolling on LinkedIn one day and I really love the videos created by the World Economic Forum. So I saw this video and it said, Dubai wants to have 30% of its buildings 3D printed by the uh, by 2030. And I thought, you can 3D print a house, like a building? Like, what is this? So we did a bit more digging and uh, we were able to connect with Ian Arthur, who works with Nidus 3D in Kingston. And when we had our conversation for our inaugural episode, what struck me as really interesting, and this was kind of the big aha, is you can 3D print a house, so a 1,200 square foot bungalow in one week. And that blew me away. I was like, well, if you can do it in a week, why aren't we doing more of this? And of course, you know, it comes down to building codes, which don't exist for 3D printed houses. They're made of concrete. So obviously building codes, municipal permits, so a lot of bureaucracy because we're this is so new and we're just on the cusp of making this, you know, uh, a reality. And um, the other piece that was really interesting is these 3D printers cost $2 million each. So, you know, it's not for the average person to run around building, you know, 3D printing their own house. But I do think it's a possible solution for the future. So that was really interesting. The other one was um, something I was talking to Ashlyn O'Hara, who does accessibility and transportation work. And she said, transportation really is a determinant of health. And I, that made me pause because it's not one of the ones that crops up when you think social determinants of health. But she said, well, if you don't have access to transportation, whether it's community transportation service or you're unable to drive, well, then how are you getting to the grocery store or how are you getting groceries? And she had stats where if you don't have proper transportation, uh, you make fewer visits to the doctor, that whole you know primary care piece. Like there's just so many different things. You're socially isolated on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And so that struck me as really interesting. And I also, uh, we also had an episode on AI and aging and how ageism is baked in some of these algorithms related to AI. So that was um, that was really fascinating. So those were some of the ahas, and including the the climate change ones that I shared earlier, which is this you know we got to work towards more of a well being society, and you know taking care of the, uh, taking care of the planet. You can't have healthy people without a healthy planet. Yeah, well, those are great ahas. I mean, certainly gives me certainly food for thought. I mean, I I, I do think that. Um, yeah, the the future of AI, like if it's being programmed effectively by the same unconscious bias and everything else that we bring to our everyday, we're going to create a new intelligence that is carries our same uh, human failings, um, which is kind of scary, <laughs> right? So, but a, an opportunity also, right, to to change. Um, so, yeah, uh, very interesting. So. Wow. Well, I'm looking forward to your next season as well and as we continue to sort of learn from you and with you as well. So thank you. Um, 
so maybe just as we wrap to a close here, Zanet, um, again, very gracious for the time that you spent with us here to share all of the work. Um, how can our listeners, again, learn more about um, Courage, your podcast, and the, the work of SE Health or anything else that you want to share? For sure. Well, first of all, it's been my pleasure. This has been a fantastic conversation. So thank you so much for having me on your show. In terms of the podcast, check out thefutureage.ca. So it's got all the links uh, to all the episodes, plus the work that we do at the Future of Aging team. And then for Courage, it, the web address is actionforbetteraging.ca. Great. And for those that haven't, you know, can't uh, imagine all of this, the, the word courage is emphasized with a big, bold age in the middle of that. So that's, uh, again, a, a great emphasis in terms of, um, you know, I think the, uh, the mission, I guess, in terms of some of the work that you're doing here. So thank you. Um, any, anyways, again, Zana, it's been a great pleasure having this conversation with you. Um, I look forward to more conversations with you as we continue on this journey together um, and learning about the future of aging with you. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Dale. Okay, take care. You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.